Well, please turn to Psalm 150. This morning, Psalm 150, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Psalms, Worship in Technicolor. So we're going to cover the very last psalm this morning. So I'll give you a moment to look it up. Give myself a moment to look it up here. What's that? I have read it, yes. <laughs> Once or twice. Uh, great. Well, today's message is entitled, Hallelujah! Magnified! And it comes from Psalm 150. So let me read it as we begin this morning. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipes. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, church, this is a rather short psalm. And let's be honest, it's not a terribly difficult psalm to understand, okay? It begins with the words, praise the Lord, literally, hallelujah. And it concludes in verse 6 with the very same words, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's an invitation to praise him, and it is a response so in some ways, I'm tempted to say this may be, well, one of my shorter sermons. Some of you may be glad to hear that. But here's the issue as well. In some ways, it's easy to understand, but it's much more difficult to apply and to live in the good of that which we're to speak about from Psalm 150. My wife, Cindy, and I have a number of sayings. So she has posted a number of sayings over time around our house. Some sayings and some verses. Can I just have a timeout? Is that allowed in preaching, a timeout? I just wanted to say, today is our wedding anniversary. And uh, we've been married for 20, 23 years. That sounds surreal just saying that, 23 years. You know what, I, I can just say, I, I've been prone to doubt decisions that I've made, but I have never for one second, for one nanosecond, ever doubted the decision to marry my wife. That has been by far the best decision in my life, apart from following Christ. Honey, I love you, and I just can't believe 23 years. And this morning. Where was I? Um... Yeah, sayings. Cindy has posted a number of sayings around our home. And there's one I read this week, which I honestly hadn't paid much attention to until this week. And it says this. Life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass, but learning to dance in the rain. And friends, there's a lot of truth to that. A lot more than I often care to admit. We all encounter storms in life. We know that, storms metaphorically speaking. 
That is, we all encounter trials, temptations, tragedies. Just thinking of this past week, speaking with Roxanne yesterday, Toledo, who lost her uncle this week in a tragic, obviously unexpected car accident. And just the shock, just the grieving of losing someone so suddenly. The other person in the car was a Cuban pastor who's in critical condition, but may pull out of it. It's life, and those are storms, and those are real storms. And it's those storms that touch us as humans in a variety of different ways. For some, there's just anxiety. When you encounter a storm, it, you just, there, there's fraught with worry regarding the future. For some of you, you respond more in anger. You're angry at everyone. You're angry at no one. You didn't know why you're angry. You're just angry. When the storms blow in. For some, it's, it's depression. It's a darkness that goes deep. For some, similar to that, it's a, it's a resignation. Because that's how life's going to be. And I, I think a natural response mechanism, when we encounter those storms of life, is often to do what we would do when we're in a violent, rain-drenched thunderstorm in South Florida. What do we often do? We just wait it out, right? I'm just going to wait it out at home. I'm just going to wait it out at work. I'm just going to wait it out under the overhang at Costco or wherever you're shopping. I don't know why I think at Costco, but I'm always caught in a rainstorm at Costco, you know? And everyone's just gathered with their shopping carts, you know, waiting, hoping for the rain to pass so you can make it with your goods to your vehicle. So often, we can live life that way. You know, once the storm passed, then I'll get in my car. Then I'll do my errands. Then I'll get on with life. Then I'll get my praise back on when the storm passes. But what if the storm doesn't pass in an hour, in a day, in a week, in a month, even in years? What do we do then? Is it possible to still get our praise on and still dance? Dance in the rain. And I think it's significant that this psalm is the last psalm that concludes a psalter. And if you've been reading with us throughout the psalms, there's just a lot of storms going on. I mean, just listen to the words of, of David or the psalmist. There's always some storm, some issue, some darkness, some enemy some type of suffering that seems to be taking place that's being described in these psalms. It's like the storms just don't seem to end. But then we get to Psalm 50 as part of the psalm of ascents, and it's, it's just praise. It's just praise the Lord. I'm not, I don't see any resolution. I mean, I'm reading these psalms. A lot of times there's not any resolution. David, as Al said so aptly the other day, just describing a situation. And then he's declaring. He's describing and declaring. Well, today we're declaring. The storm may have not passed. You may be in a storm this morning. There may be real darkness. Sonia came up this morning in the last song of our worship. Said, I just sense some people are in a cave, a dark cave in pitch black. And God wants to know there's a light. There's a light shining. And I think this morning we have our light. And it's found here in Psalm 50. So what are we doing with the psalm? What are we wanting to accomplish this morning? Well, this is my prayer. It's my prayer all week. That we would learn to pick up our God-given umbrella, church, and go into the rain. 
Psalm 150 right here is your umbrella, metaphorically speaking. It's that which you need to go into the rain to take it up. If we take this umbrella up, this umbrella of praise, it will guard our hearts from the ill effects of the rain of the storm or even the scorching sunshine as well. But listen to this. This God-given umbrella, Psalm 50, will not take away the storm. It'll do something better. It will allow you to praise God and to sing in the midst of the storm and maybe even dance as well to the glory of God and to the amazement, to the amazement of a watching world. With that in mind, let's pray. Well, dear Lord, seldom do we have the opportunity, it would seem, to so immediately apply a text of Scripture. But this morning, we do. We don't need to leave this auditorium. We don't need tomorrow. We don't need to wait for the storm to pass before we can praise you. This is something we can do right now. We can do it as we listen. We can do it as we respond through praise and song at the conclusion of our service today. So Lord, we're asking that we would experience, that we would be able to live in the good of that which we're about to hear from Psalm 150. May it, may the truths therein make it to our hearts and may result in resounding praise to your name and to your glory. Amen. Well, this psalm really neatly addresses a number of questions, important questions about worship, particularly worship in song or praise. And the first is this, we'll put up on the screen, is the question of who? The question of who? Who do we praise? Well, hopefully that's pretty obvious. Verse one, it's the Lord. But as we talked about here at Palm Vista before, I think you've been trained, it's the Lord. Lord is in all caps. This is the personal name of God. This psalm is a call to personally know and to praise God, the God who has redeemed you, the God who has saved you, the God who will never forsake you in the storm. The Lord, the covenant-making, the promise-keeping God. That's obvious, but I don't want to assume that this morning. Most of you are here because you do know the Lord, and I believe you're here. You want to praise the Lord. But let me just say this. You can't praise the Lord if you don't know him as such, as we're going to speak about this morning. Psalm 150, it's just not going to work. Because praise that we're speaking about here. It's not just an act. It's an attitude of the heart, of a heart who's been redeemed. So if you're here this morning and you do not have a personal relationship with God of the Bible through Christ Jesus, you can't do this. It's only possible if we humble ourselves, if we bow our knee to Jesus and we surrender to him. For he is the only salvation in the storm. This may mean throwing away that cheap umbrella that you bought for $3 from a street vendor, all right? That is whatever you're trusting in, other than God, to save you in the storm. Whatever you're trusting in apart from God, 
it's going to crumple. It's going to crumple like a cheap, mangled umbrella in a windstorm. Oh, friends, chuck it. Get rid of it and come to Jesus. Not just that. Gather with God's people. I know you are, but I know there's those who are listening. Perhaps those right now who are watching this. You're not here. I so desire that you'd be here to chuck that umbrella that can do you no good in the storm. Come to Jesus. But in coming to Jesus, come here. Come wherever to gather with believers together as one to sing his praises. And that leads to the second question. It's a question of where and with whom do we praise the Lord? Look at verse one again. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. See, this call to praise God in his sanctuary most likely refers to the temple. That's God's earthly residence. At least back in the psalmist's day, this temple was located, you know, in Jerusalem. But today, the temple is the church. It is we who are gathered. We see that clearly in 1 Corinthians 3.16. We'll put it up there. We read these words. Do you not know that you, that word you is plural, you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The point is this. We praise God. But church, don't miss this. We praise God together as his people. We do it as a body. The fancy word for that is corporately. We do it together. See, this psalm is a lot more than just putting on your headphones and playing your worship playlist or cranking some worship tunes in the car. Now, if you do that, that's wonderful. I encourage you to do that, to renew your mind in the word of God through song. Excellent. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. We are talking about a corporate praise. We, the people in his sanctuary, coming together. Why? Because we need to praise God together. We need to hear each other sing. Colossians 3.16 says it this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Can we put it up there? Stephen, thanks. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Did you catch that, that verbiage there? One another. That's important. We teach, and listen to this, this is crazy. We even warn each other through the songs that we sing. The songs that we just sang, that set, worship set, four songs. Oh, we, we were singing to God, but we were singing to one another. We were exhorting, we were encouraging, and yes, we were warning to the truths that we were singing. What do you mean warning? Well, we warn because our hearts so often wander. We warn because we wander. We wander from the truth. We are singing truth that we need to hear and we need to hear again and again. So we sing it and we sing it together. As we praise God, we are edifying and we are teaching one another. That may be new for some of you. That may even be a little mysterious to some of you. But I think you know it. If you've been with us before, you've gathered as a church to praise him. I think you know this truth experientially as a Christian. I mean, songs that we sing in their lyrics, see songs sung together, they tend to stick, don't they? They do, they stick in our mind. I mean, I don't know, but I doubt many of you probably go home and take the song list and the lyrics and try to memorize them. It's probably not what you're doing Monday through Saturday. 
But you know what? I suspect many of you know the lyrics. Not because you've been sitting and memorizing them, because you've sung them time and time again. Furthermore, experientially, I hope and I suspect that some of those songs that you've been singing, they have resonated. That truth has been planted deep into your hearts. And as you've sung to God and to one another, and we've done it corporately, there's something that has stuck there that's real. It's the work of God as we sing together. See, church, if we're not praising God together, there's some serious holes in our umbrella. There's some serious leakage going on, okay? When the storms hit, we need each other. And this powerful truth should inform the priority of corporate worship, what we're doing right now. Thank you for being here. I believe you believe that. You got out of bed, got dressed, thank you, and you're here this morning to worship. But this truth not only informs the priority of corporate worship, I also believe it informs our punctuality as well. To be here to worship God. I don't want to say that. I can get in a lot of trouble, these kind of, these kind of points right here. But, but hear me out, right? See, when we're coming together to sing at 1030, we're not just singing to God. We are singing to God, yes and amen. But we're also singing to one another. But we've got to be there, right? As we're there, we're singing to one another because you hear the person next to you singing or hopefully you do, you know they're there and it's an edifying teaching moment. So the question is, are we here on time? Is this just physically able? There's times you can't be, we get that. We're not physically able. But if you are, are you here? Are you leaning forward? Not only to worship God, but to do it with one another because worship is not just a vertical thing. It is to do in God. The point is this, worship is also a horizontal thing. It's also a person-to-person thing. That's what we see as well. Well, there's another powerful truth brought out in this verse one. It says this, we praise him in his mighty heavens. We don't praise him from heaven, heaven, excuse me, now. We're here on earth, right? No, but we call others in heaven to praise him as well. B, we praise the Lord together with the heavenly host. As the ESV study Bible puts it, the voices of human worshipers alone are too feeble. Let the heavenly host help. (laughs) We need help. Our worship needs help. It does. That's what we read in Psalm 148 up on the screen. These words, two Psalms prior. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Here we go. Praise him, all his angels. We're talking to angels to praise him. That's what they're made to do, to praise him. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. God is so great. God is so worthy of praise that heaven is enlisted to give him the praise that is due. So what is happening now as we gather, it's what's happening in heaven as we praise on earth. Our praise we sung about it in that song, Let Every Breath. Let Every Breath. Let Every Breath? Yeah. <laughs> I think that has breath. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Everything. Our praise is being joined with heaven above. To sum it up so far, Psalm 150 is a call to worship. It's a call to worship together with each other and with heaven. In a sense, this is a radical, corporate, all-inclusive call to praise which is for our own 
edification, but it's also for this. And don't miss this. It's for God's greater glory. I want to read a quote from Donald Whitney. Maybe you haven't thought of it this way. When a football team wins the national championship, it gets more glory if the game is shown to millions throughout the country than if no one but you were to see it individually on closed circuit TV. Public glory obviously brings more glory than does private glory. Likewise, God gets more glory when you worship him with the church than when you worship him alone. You catch that? God's concerned about public glory. If you don't believe it, read Genesis, read Exodus. I've, I've been going through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and I mean, there's times where God's people are rebelling against Moses, God's chosen anointed leader, and, and God says, I'm just going to smite him. I'm, I'm going to get rid of him. Listen to Moses' words. Just, Lord, but if you do, what would the nation say? What would the people say? You who delivered your people did not sustain them. What's he doing? He's appealing to God's reputation, his public glory. And God relents. If you don't believe God is concerned with public glory, read Revelation. When he returns, it's all about public glory. Every eye will see. Every knee will bow. Nothing will be hidden. Everyone will see God in his glory when our conquering Savior returns. He's about public glory. And when we gather, we are giving him glory in a way we don't individually. I'm not saying you can't give him glory individually. We do it through our work. We do it through our lives. But there's something special when we gather. There's a public glory and testimony that we are given to our Lord. But to bring God greater glory, we must be moved by greater glory. A glory greater than ourselves or anything this world can offer. In other words, to praise God as you see in this psalm, there must be an engine. There must be a motor which drives our corporate worship. Otherwise, we can just sing to him and we just go through the motions. Maybe you felt that at times. You're just going through the motions. Well, church, we have the juice. We have the motive. We have the motor right here in Psalm 50, 150. Without the motor, we'll be like, remember Fred Flintstone? I know I'm dating myself. We'll be like Fred Flintstone driving a Stone Age car with rock wheels and no motor. You know, <laughs> all legs. You know, it, it, that may work in the old cartoons, but it doesn't work in real life. Church, we need a motor. We need to drive us. We need an impetus. And that engine, that motor is found in verse two. It addresses the why question. So number three, why? Why do we praise the Lord? Look at verse two. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. In other words, we praise God for his work. That's his mighty deeds. And we praise him for his worth. That would be his excellent greatness. What is God's work that we're referring to? Well, I think there's really... Two basic categories of work that we see in the Psalms, really in Scripture. We praise him for his work. What kind of work? Number one, his creative and his continuing work. As we've learned in our Bible 45 class, if you've been there or listened, we've spoke about this, this fact that God is a worker. He's the ultimate worker that we imitate, that we image. Well, how does God work? He creates and he cares. 
That is, he provides for that which he creates, his creation. Listen to the words describing Jesus, the Son of God from Colossians 1. This is amazing. Starting with verse 15. Speaking of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things, all things hold together. Not only did Jesus create everything for himself and for his glory, but he holds all things together for his glory as well. Everything. To quote one commentator, what holds the universe together is not an idea or virtue, or I may add, a theory. What holds the universe together is a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. And the planets would not stay in their orbits. Jesus holds together, church, every molecule and every marriage here. Hebrews 1.3 puts it this way, speaking of Jesus again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Here we go. And he upholds the universe. This is incredible. By the word of his power. Jesus upholds everything by his sustaining word. God spoke. Jesus spoke and the word came into being, Genesis 1 and 2, and now upholds everything by his sustaining word. It's for very good reason that Jesus is called in scripture the living word. The living word who creates and who sustains all things. Jesus, the living word. It's no coincidence that we are called to praise him with words as well. What words? His promises about himself revealed in his work. But our praise is not limited just to God's creative work, to God's provision for us. Although we know that he is behind sustaining all things that we may live. Oh, we praise him for that. But it's not like we praise him. Our praise is limited to just his supply of our physical needs. God works through creation and care. But he also works through redemption. And we praise him not just for his creation and care, but we also praise him for his redemption. I want to read the last part here. Going back to Hebrews 1.3. Because I left off part of the verse. I want you to hear it now. All together, verses 1 through 3, in totality. I'm going to start with verse 1 again. He is the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here we go. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, when I read that, I, I wasn't anticipating that last sentence, after making purification. He sustains all things by his word of his power. And then there's this talk about purification. Where does that fit into the verse? Well, how did Jesus sustain us by his powerful word? How does Jesus providentially care for us? One of the ways he does it is by purifying us, by cleansing us, by cleaning us up. 
He did it by dying for us on the cross, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, which is at the right hand of the Father, where he says by the power of his word, you are mine. I have cleansed you. I have purified you. Satan cannot touch you, and I will not condemn you. That is what Jesus is saying. He will not condemn you. I have purified you. You are mine. And nothing's going to take you away from me. Friends, Jesus takes what is dirty and makes it clean. He takes what is broken and he fixes it. He takes what is incomplete and makes it whole. He takes ashes and makes beauty. He's in it for you. He's in it for me. He's in it for every Christian here who was ever called on the matchless name of Jesus and been saved. To quote 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life. That life, I believe, is eternal life. And godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God has given us everything we need for life, eternal life, and godliness. It's no wonder we read in the second verse to praise him according to his excellent greatness. In other words, praise him not just for his work, but praise him for his worth. Church, if Jesus is worth everything, He's worth everything. Or he's worth nothing. There's no in between. His work, his worth, as creator, as sustainer, and savior, is worth everything. He's worth nothing as a mere teacher. He's worth nothing as a mere moral example to us all. He's worth nothing as a psychologist, a camp counselor, or a philosopher. For none of those occupations or roles in and of themselves can give us life and save us. What we need is a savior. I've heard it said, and it's so true. If our problem was mainly educational, God would give us an educator. If our problem was mainly economic, he would have given us an economist. If our main problem was political, he would have given us a politician. But our main problem is sin, and he's given us a savior. And we must contest for that, church. We must. Don't make Jesus, or don't allow him to become anything less. See, our tendency as fallen human beings will always be to make God in our image. No, we were made in God's image. Don't make him in our puny image. But we're tempted to. We're tempted to shrink God down in size. We, we, we want to tame God, don't we? We want to make him our size. Why? So we can manipulate him. So we can understand him a little better. But that's not the God revealed in the Bible. We need to praise God for who he is. We need to praise God for his mighty deeds, his works, as well as his excellent greatness, his worth as creator, as his one who's cared for us and as one who has saved us. Nothing less, nothing less 
will do in the storms of life. Without verse 2, we have no praise. Without verse 2, we, we have no grace. Without verse 2, we have no love. To uh, borrow and paraphrase from 1 Corinthians 13, the quote-unquote love chapter, without verse 2, church, we're just a noisy gong. We in the band up here, just a bunch of clanging symbols. But if verse 2 is operating in our lives, we are apprehending God for who he is, and we're praising him in our hearts, we know and we believe that he is our creator, sustainer, and redeemer. That will infuse our praise. That will be the motor and engine we need together corporately. And as we come together and praise, you know what? It's going to be loud. It's going to be expressive. It's going to be full, embodied praise. And that leads to the fourth and final question, how? How do we praise the Lord? Let's read verses 3 through 5. Praise Him with a trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud, clashing cymbals. Do you notice the picture of praise here? First of all, it involves all types of instruments, doesn't it? Right? We got wind, strings, percussion, and even dance. In other words, nothing seems off limits here. I love what the, once again, the ESV study Bible says. The list of instruments here gives the impression of loud song and ceaseless motion. The worshiper's whole body offering praise to God. I got what gives the impression. Who wrote that? It gives the impression. This is what it is. This is what you see. It's clear, isn't it? It's loud. It's expressive. It's full-bodied worship. Church, would you expect anything less from the truths we just talked about? I don't think so. Not in verse 2. Notice the verbiage here. Praise him, verse 3, with the trumpet sound. See, this trumpet, it's interesting. It's not the type of trumpet that we often think of. This is not, in other words, a metal trumpet, okay? This is what's called a shofar. Maybe you've never heard a shofar in person, but it's deep and it's resonating. But I bet you've heard it maybe in the movies, if you've perhaps watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This was the horn that was blown for battle. This was the horn that was blown to rally the armies together. This was the horn that would echo through the valleys in a time of war. This is a trumpet of war. It was a military signal. Remember the story about the walls of Jericho? How'd they fall down? It was a shofar being blown as they circled around Jericho. This is what is being spoken of in verse three. And this includes motion. Look at verse four. Praise him with tambourine and dance. This tambourine here was a, really just a handheld drum, okay? It was a, a membrane stretched out over a simple frame. From my study, they believe it did not have any of those little jingles that we associate tambourines with. No, this was a mobile drum. Why would you need a mobile drum? Because you're moving. You're on the move. You get it? This was what's being captured here. So you can move. And yes, even dance. Numerous times we see the tambourine and worship as an expression of joy and praise. Like after God miraculously delivered the, Egypt, excuse me, the Israelites from Egypt through the Red Sea. What do we read in Exodus 15, verses 20 and 21? Let me read it for you. It says this. 
Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You notice a theme here of victory? A theme of deliverance, which marked their praise. But also the dancing, the movement as well. And notice this. Notice how this section ends. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. The cymbal was the loudest instrument. It was used to conclude the song or the hymn. So it's a little different than today. We might use the cymbals to you know, beat out a rhythm. That's not what we're talking about here. The cymbals were used as the climax. They were a signal to respond with a cry of acclamation. They were a cue to shout. They were the exclamation point. So let's take this together. We begin with the shofar. It's a battle. So what, what battle are we in? Huh. Well, it wasn't you're right. Christ has won the battle. But if you're like me, we're still in a battle, right? We're in a battle to believe. To believe what God has revealed. So when we sing, we're doing battle, okay? And we're doing it with our voices. We're doing it with our bodies. And the symbols, it's like a clashing symbol. It's a climax. And praise the Lord. It's the exclamation mark to all that God has revealed and what we're praising him for. Do you get the picture? Praising God is not for the timid. It's for those who have been delivered from sin and condemnation. It's for the redeemed. Now, first of all, if you're Hispanic, you're a Latin, I mean, you you, you get some amens here, okay? I mean, I have just given you a biblical apologetic for the way so many of you are already wired, loud and expressive. I'm saying it's biblical. It's good, okay? Yeah, so I'm asking you to lead the way here. But I hope that you derive a little comfort from hearing this from a White, stiff, quiet Anglo guy. I mean, I, I'm agreeing, okay? I'm seeing the scripture. I'm saying yes and amen. This ought to be encouraging, folks. But I also realize this. Some of you may be feeling a little uncomfortable as well. You may say, well, Corey, you, know, you don't know my tradition. And when we read these verses, it's easy to say, well, that's just a different culture. You know, that was, that was a bygone era, you know? You, you don't know how I grew up. I mean... Where I grew up, I mean, you wouldn't, it was solemn. You wouldn't dare raise your hand. <laughs> no way. Let alone dance, you got to be crazy. That's weird. Some of you may have grown up in a Pentecostal tradition. I mean, you got it all going, man. You know the loudness. You know the tambourines. You added the praise banners. You get the shouting of acclamation. That's what you grew up with. But you may say, but you know what? I, I'm done with that. Not for me. Maybe you didn't grow up at church at all. Whatever the case may be. Whatever the case may be. We're all influenced, aren't we, by our past. What we experienced or what we haven't experienced. But here's the point. Our worship together is to express the magnitude and the tenor of that which we sing, the truths of that we sing. See, I'm not up here to tell you how to praise him, what to do. 
I'm not going to tell you what that looks like. But I will say this. If you want your voice, if you want your body to express the truths that you deeply feel and believe, and that's very appropriate according to this psalm, we have to open our mouth. And yes, we have to move if you're physically able. And you may say, well, Corey, that feels a little uncomfortable. You're, you're meddling now. You're meddling. Well, I want to say, if you feel uncomfortable, that's okay. To be uncomfortable doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't even mean it's inauthentic. And I realize to the millennial generation, that's what the greatest, greatest sin, right? To be inauthentic. Can't do it, not authentic. You know? Well, could it be? Can I just give you a category for this awkwardness that you may feel when you think of expressing yourself in full-bodied worship or singing loudly when you don't have a good voice? You feel a little awkward? I got a category for it. It's called being human. It's human. You just may need a little practice. That's okay. I got to practice a lot of things. Doesn't make it wrong. That's what you want to do. You want to grow. You practice. But somehow it's funny. We feel like we shouldn't have to practice in worship because it's not real. I just say, if it expresses your heart, even awkwardly, it's real. It is. We want to be a people. We're, we're, we're not putting on a show. We're not talking about doing this to impress one another. We're simply wanting to give voice and expression to the glorious truths. If we believe Jesus is everything, our worship ought to reflect it. Church, that's Psalm 150. So we're going to have an opportunity to do that Right now, I'm going to call the worship team up and we're going to sing one last song. I want to say something here. As we gather, we're giving God glory publicly. We're doing it in a variety of ways. One thing I want to mention as well, when we gather, when we stand in a moment and give God glory through praise, as we gather as God's people, drawn from the nations, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, we are a picture of God's saving purposes. You understand that? We are a picture of God's saving person, his saving work, his purposes in gathering every tongue, every tribe, and every nation together. So we have the opportunity corporately to express that as we praise right now. Before we do that, I want to do one thing that's a little unusual. I, w- I want to pray for Zeke. I'm going to pray for you, Zeke. I'm praying for the whole, whole band here because you're, guys, you're leading us. You're leading us. Thank you. You lead us each and every week. It is work and it takes practice. But so much of what we do is a response to your leadership. You are setting the cue, the exclamation marks. We may not have a trumpet, but what you're saying, exhorting us to is that trumpet. As we sing, Gary, as you select the words with the pastors, with Zeke, you are serving us that we can worship and put into practice Psalm 150. So let me pray for them and then we'll stand and respond, okay? Well, I just do pray for each and every one here. Pray for Zeke as as a leader here and just ask that you would fill him with your joy. What we're talking about here, we can't produce it. It's something that you do in us. So Lord, I pray you give him energy now and give him grace to be able to lead us through praise that is commensurate to the truths that we have just spoken about. And may your spirit fill him and fill us now, and each member of this band, and each person standing, as we sing as your body unto you.
for your public glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Let's stand and let's sing.